0: Back to another episode of Ball Talks. This is your host Brad and today it's just going to be uh, producer Devin. How you doing? No other guest host today. Um, just so everybody knows we are shooting to try to do this podcast every two weeks approximately. It's been a little bit of a break here. Uh, producer Devin is a student at uh, studying marketing and so sometimes his schedule is full of tests and fun things like that and obviously as an attorney sometimes mine's full of fun things like trials. So occasionally this will be a little bit spaced out a little bit further but it is our goal to try to put out content every couple of weeks so we're glad to be back and have you all listening again today. We're going to take a look at uh, a little bit about the history of biker gangs and they're tied to the criminal world.
1: Yeah this was actually a suggestion by one of uh, one of one of our viewers who actually watches us quite often and we greatly appreciate that we love the support you guys give. It really warms our hearts. You should see, you know, Brad and Adam, damn near doing jumping jacks when you guys compliment us and the views that we get. Like these guys are more. I feel like they're more ecstatic over the views on the podcast than what they what their bank statements ended up looking like for running this <laughs> running this bitch. But uh, yeah, you you know who you are that gave it to us. Gave us this idea. I don't know if you'd like us to say exactly who you are. And because we, I don't have any clarification on that. I won't, I don't mean that in any sort of of disrespect. Uh, but we definitely, we definitely do appreciate you and you put, you put this all into motion.
0: Yeah. And if we have other listeners out there that have, um, topics you want to hear about, uh, you know, post them online, shoot us a message, whatever on Facebook. Uh, we're happy to hear about it. We'd love to, love to have some ideas. We've got some things in the works for, Future episodes coming up, so but uh, always happy to hear from our listeners and what you guys might want to hear yeah, about. Yeah,
1: we, we, would, we would do what you guys recommend before we do anything. We come up with ourselves just because we're so appreciative of you guys, honestly.
0: So we're titled this, this is called the Biker Gangs Podcast, the first group we're going to take a look at. And we should say a lot of these, you know, the, the, the sort of paradigm that's interesting with these biker gangs, as you want to call them, is a lot of them have very uh, – meaningful and even charitable purposes. A lot of them are just guys and gals that are wanting to ride bikes and, and enjoy time together. A lot of them do fundraisers and uh, rides across the country to raise money for different organizations, things like that. So <clears throat> while it, it may seem like it a little bit today that we're focusing on the negative, that's because we're trying it into what we do and what the criminal world is. But you know, for those of you out there that might be involved in some bike organizations, we do realize there's some Real good work being done, a lot of good fundraising being done, and even some of these groups did some of that too. But there's our, there's there's different individuals that we'll talk about throughout uh, the podcast today that you know engaged in some pretty heavy diff heavy duty uh, criminal activity.
1: And no, our, our consensus for a majority of biker gangs is that majority of those people in those are not criminals, are not uh, selling drugs, or hurting anybody, or doing anything like that. Um, so, don't think that we're kind of encompassing everybody, especially after the research we did. It really, because we, we do a lot of research and it really uh, opened our eyes to it. Just how, I mean, it kind of just shows that, you know, you can't let a bad apple necessarily spoil the bunch. Um, you can wear a biker jacket, but not be affiliated with the things that may come with a Rico charge for the rest of the gang. But because of that, we also understand that because you're affiliated with this biker gang, there may be innocent people that sometimes get wrapped up in this who never, you know, who are there for the charitable situation or they just want to ride a goddamn bicycle or a motorcycle, not a bicycle. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, so we we recognize that you know maybe sometimes get people get caught up on things that they didn't necessarily do and wanted to really avoid. Um, so we don't we don't want to paint a picture that if you're in a biker gang, you're bad or anything. I mean, I, I fucking love motorcycles, and I was in a quote unquote. Motorcycle, like I wouldn't say gang, but we hung up, we hung out just to ride motorcycles. We didn't call ourselves a gang. We didn't have jackets or anything, you know. So people that ride motorcycles know it's more fun and safer to do it in a group. So in no means, uh, if is this supposed to be like bashing anybody or anything? And even the people that are doing criminal activities, we're not bashing that at all. Um, I feel like saying someone is a criminal is such an archaic term. Unless you do some really heinous shit, because you know, which
0: some of these guys did,
1: well, some of them did do. <laughs> one, one
0: one story in particular that we'll talk about.
1: But if you're a criminal at one point, and you turn your life around. Is it fair to say you're a criminal twenty years later? No,
0: no, you know exactly. I mean? Yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of this is, I think, is akin to the pr- police brutality episode we did. There's obviously, I think, m- more good police officers than there are bad. It's same type type, type of thing. But you know, we're going to talk a little bit about the. The history, where these came about, and then some of the incidents they've been involved in in the criminal world. Uh, the, fir- the first group we're going to take a look at is probably one of the most famous, and that's the Pagans M- MC. Uh, they've been categorized by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, uh, also you know, shortly known as the ATF, as an outlaw motorcycle club. They're known to fight over territory with the Hells Angels Motor Club. And other motorcycle gangs for that, or motorcycle clubs for that matter. Uh, they're currently active in a number of states. That includes California, Nevada, Delaware, and 17 other states. They were originally established in Prince George's County, Maryland. Uh, the president at that time was a Lou Dobkin, and it was beginning back in 1957 and then officially organized in 1958. He was actually a notable senior biochemist at the National Institute of Health during this time.
1: Now, what I think is really interesting is, you know, you, you hear a motorcycle gang called the Pagans, and there's also, like, the Warlocks and the things like that, and it's, I find it so ironic, because when you hear those names, you would think of, at least I would, a bunch of fucking nerds, and, I mean, this guy, he was a senior biochemist, he was really smart, he was clearly a nerd, but it, it just goes to show, like, the real diversity of a single human, because... They, they kind of had, I, I think the name is cool, but I think it's a little bit nerdy, but the fact that... some well, I mean, their
0: first president was a biochemist. Right,
1: but the fact that these people were willing to chop up bodies and kill people and fight over territory and things like that, like, it, it just goes to show that, like, the multiple dynamics of the human persona, this guy was a biochemist, and then he was running a motorcycle gang that became something that ended up being um, outlawed. By the ATF, I, it's well, just the disparity they, is crazy. And within their ranks, they had
0: people that had different functions too. You, know, you had enforcers and yeah. people that were de- you know designed to be <clears throat> the more intimidating members of the group. I'm guessing old um, Lou was probably not an enforcer.
1: Well, right, but imagine you know you have an organization and you aren't getting your hands dirty, but you're calling numbers to right. have people get your hands dirty for right. you. You'll still feel a type of way. Oh, you're that. still involved. Yeah, you're still involved, In and some you, ways in a worse way. You still are the final shot caller. You right. are the reason why things are set, set in the motion. Right. So, if anything, you guys are equal in what is happening.
0: Well, the pagans start out wearing denim jackets that were embroidered with an insignia instead of the more standard three-piece patches utilized by most of the outlaw motorcycle clubs. Uh, they were riding in both the American and uh, they were, they were riding both American and British motorcycles, mostly Harley Davidsons and Triumphs. Originally, they were a brotherhood of 13 motorcyclists, so, you know, relatively small. In the 1960s, they adopted a formal constitution and formed a governing structure, choosing a national president who was paid the same amount as the president of the United States at the time, uh, working out to $100,000 a year. That's a pretty crazy fact.
1: And they called it a show of class, and their first president's name is Tank.
0: Yeah, so the the, the, uh, organization is... uh, Getting some real legitimacy at this point. I mean, they're they're raising enough money to pay somebody hundred thousand dollars a year to run the club, and and, and yeah. you know in this time period, nineteen um, sixties. I mean, that's I don't know what that would be in today's dollars.
1: Well, I think I think I could be totally wrong in this, but I feel like the president is paid a hundred thousand regardless. Like it just works out to a hundred thousand today's money. So of course, right now it's a hundred thousand. Right. But maybe then it was like fifty thousand. So because um, it worked out to a hundred thousand dollars. Per year, so, so that's that would be in today's dollars. In today's, dollars. Oh, okay, okay, yes, okay, yes. that
0: makes sense. Still though, for no, that's, a motorcycle club, that's a substantial amount of money, right? Absolutely, that's a side gig. Right, right. right. Uh, they were a fairly non-violent group, uh, which makes sense to be a reflection of probably their their original leadership. Until 1965, it's during this time that they began swelling and growing in numbers, which is you know makes some sense as to where they maybe started losing a little bit of control over the, the path they were on. Uh, and that's when they really started became known as an outlaw motorcycle club. Uh, during a rally in Maryland, the group got into a number of fights, shoutouts, and they were referred to shootouts. Uh, shootouts. Said shoutouts, shootouts. They were referred to as the one percent motorcyclist who caused problems in local newspapers. And the one percent was being—they were saying that that was that small a percentage that was causing all the problems yeah. in, the, in the groups. They quickly developed a patch of their own called the One Percenters. Yep,
1: and they they took uh, they took full they liked that one percenter uh, name that 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 was given to them. They they even claimed to have invented that. And like like you said, they adopted the one percent patch. They would reference the news article papers all the time. And then other when you see you're the one percent of motorcyclists that cause problems, that probably causes some fear with the other motorcyclists. They don't want to fuck with you. You're that guy. You know what I mean. So then other outlaw motorcycle clubs started also adopting that one percenter patch. And, I mean, if you know anything about motorcycle clubs today, one thing that is always said is the one percenters. And, and that just goes to show that one percent of the motor like people that are in those clubs are the ones that are engaging in criminal activity or this or that or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it goes to show how small of a group – of a subgroup inside of a much larger group that is actually doing like illegal things, and yet the whole group kind of gets casted as
0: right. You're, you know, the whole you're judged by your weakest link or whatever. I mean, well, it's that sort of. You know,
1: humans we're we just have we have that tribal mentality. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah.
0: And if if you know if it's if this person's that way, then they're all that way. Exactly. Yeah, and for sure. And the one percenter became like a badge of honor for those that were into that side of the motorcycle club, and then it was, you know, a separate thing you had to be able to get, allowed to be into. Um, they've been, uh, the pagans have been tied to traditional organized crime. That included the La Cosa Nostra region. Uh, I was
1: waiting for you to butcher that. That wasn't too bad. It wasn't too bad. I
0: took three years of Spanish. I didn't learn a damn thing, but I took it. Uh, I don't even know if that's Spanish. Is that Spanish? Yeah, that, yeah that's right. Spanish. Okay, good. Uh, they were cu- popping up in cities like Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, uh, New York. They quickly became dominant in the Mid Atlantic region. They were the only OMC in the region, as well as a large portion of the Northeast United States. So they were sort of dominating the territory at that time.
1: And OMC means Outlaw Motorcycle Club.
0: Correct. And the, their, their growth under the leadership of John St. Maron saw the pagans grow to Satan, nearly... Satan, not oh, Satan. Satan.
1: Yeah, his middle name was Satan, or mm-hmm. his at least nickname was Satan. That's you a... called him Saint. That is the complete wow.
0: opposite. Yeah, I really fucked that up. Uh, John Satan Moron Marin saw the pagans <laughs> moron, grow, man, you were this sh- up. taking him from a saint to a Satan and now to a moron. Uh, saw the pagans grow to nearly five thousand members in the early 1970s. Their mother club is never in a fixed location, but has generally been located in the Northeast. The pagans' top echelon of leadership must always number thirteen members. And that means that's going to be sort of the controlling.
1: Yeah, they're, they're the... Governing body or yeah, whatever. exactly. Because they start off with 13 members.
0: Right, and so they've kept that as sort of the controlling... Right. Um, controlling number of members. Uh, they are still considered one of the largest motorcycle gangs in North America. Now we're going to take a little bit of a look at how, I guess, probably most of the percenters uh, have gotten tied or did get tied to the Pagan, tied into some criminal activity. Looking back on... All the way back in 1974, March 4th of 1974, a 17-year-old by the name of an Amy Billig disappeared near her home in Coconut Grove, Florida. Billig's fate remained unknown for at least 24 years, until in 1998, Paul Branch, who was a former Pagan member, he revealed on his deathbed that on the day of his of her disappearance, she had been abducted, drugged, raped, and murdered, according to the Branch. According to Branch, Billig's body was dumped in the surrounding Everglades, though they have never been found. Billig's case was f- uh, received a lot of national attention because um, she was young when she was only 17 years old, and obviously, when those kind of things happen, the media jumps all over it.
1: Well, she was also white.
0: Yeah, that makes a huge difference. You know what um, I mean, Unfortunately, for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you just look at the coverage, even today, that murder cases get suburban. White kid versus a inner city black kid. I
1: mean, there was night that night. there was that news story of that lady who had disappeared with her boyfriend they went on a cross country trip. Police right. stopped them, right? And you know, they, it made national media attention. Yet at the same time, there was so many similar instances of black folk having the same thing happen to their children, and it didn't even make local. Oh, you know, the Delphi
0: murder cases. I mean, it's same same it, deal. Yeah, There's it, young. It's
1: just it's it's just young it,
0: black kids getting killed in in Indianapolis all the time, it, every day. This made it all the way up to national programs like Unsolved Mysteries and America's Most Wanted. Um, the no, interesting. You,
1: yeah, I think I think what you're about to say is I remember you telling me that uh, the the lady's mom didn't even believe this guy that that's what happened. She had been looking for her daughter for 20. Well, he didn't
0: reveal years. it till 24 years later, so she'd been looking during that, yeah, that entire time. And yeah that entire time. Yeah, this mom was like she made it her life's mission to find her daughter. And I was doing some additional reading on this, and and it's really kind of sad because literally the mom spent her entire life, and she did not initially believe um, uh, Mr. Billig. There's no way to know 100 percent sure that his story is right, right? Because they still didn't find the body. I mean, you tell you you tell somebody you've chopped up their body and put them in the Everglades. Well, good luck. I mean, yeah, that's I
1: mean, there's fucking alligators. Ultimate needle in the haystack. Yeah, and. Um... He gave example or like things that happened at the crime scene that only the police knew that they didn't release to her mom. And not only that, but they said that like her dying was a total accident. This doesn't make it any better at all. But they actually were just trying to rape her um, and they kept drugging her and trying to rape her. And she kept fighting back, kept fighting back. She was a fighter. You know, she was a warrior. And, and there was multiple men that were attempting to rape her, so they kept giving her drugs, more drugs, more drugs, until she OD'd. Yeah,
0: and once she OD'd, that's when they said they chopped up her body and and spread her out. One of the things that he described that made the mom sort of um, officially kind of accept that that's what the fate was and that he was telling the truth was he described a surgical um, scar that she'd had on her body that, that had never been released by the police. So there wasn't any information out there about that. That had to have been unique to somebody that actually knew what happened. There were also a variety of reports from other um, witnesses who said they saw her be picked up by somebody on a motorcycle that was in, in a large group of motorcycle riders. So there was some other supporting stuff to his story. And the pagans in that area had been long suspected by the authorities of having been involved. They just couldn't. Um, they couldn't. They couldn't prove it. So. That was sort of one of the big, uh, one of the first big stories of the pagans being involved in some criminal activity. Um, next one we'll talk about is uh, the boss at the time of the name by the name of Daniel or Danny the Deacons Wibble. Uh, he was indicted in RICO charges alongside with his co defendant James Burke and Eugene boyd Giselle.
1: It's uh, It's Giselle. It's just Swell-A. Devin
0: actually gave me the pronunciation of it, and I'm still yeah, and it he was up.
1: called, despite being called Eugene, his nickname was Nick the Blade.
0: Nick the Blade, yeah, it makes a lot of sense for Eugene. Um, he was infamous uh, Pittsburgh connection in the movies Godf- Goodfellas. Yeah, so
1: you guys that, especially the older folks, I know about the Goodfellas, but people that watch the Goodfellas and know who that the infamous quote unquote Pittsburgh connection was. Um, Danny the Deacon was from the Pagans was working with this guy. Like, you know, this was real stuff. The Goodfellas was modeled after real stuff. And they
0: this is where they sort of were making their first real um, headlines, if you will, being involved in the drug industry. Uh, so the RICO charges were all tried, tied to drug charges. Matter of fact, in 1978, um, uh, Danny the Deacon had been in prison before, uh, served 15 years. He was still running things from the prison, gets back out. It gets out early on parole in 1985 and immediately, within uh, a couple of years, is under investigation again and being charged.
1: Do you want to describe what RICO charges are and the history behind them?
0: Yeah, so RICO charges are basically um, the way you can take a where they think they can prove a criminal enterprise. So it's not like just an instance of drug dealing or an instance of, of, it can be theft rings, it can be drug dealing, it can be anything that's criminal and it's being done like a business, like it's being ran like a legitimate business would be run, that gives the government the ability to file what's called RICO charges. And those RICO charges can be a little bit sometimes easier to prove, but they also typically come with a significant more uh, penalty, uh, being able to be lopped on top of whatever the underlying charge may be too. So Danny the Deacon gets hit with uh, uh, RICO charges, he ends up dying in uh, February of 2014, having uh, served out his, his time in prison. The, the, the Pagans actually did a fairly large ceremony for him at the time he died. Um, in related, members of the Pagan Motorcycle Club, uh, known by the name Anthony Rocky LaRocca, La was the nephew to the former Pittsburgh Mafia boss, John LaRocca, and acted as a liaison for the Pagans in the LaRocca crime family. In 1973, LaRocca and another member of the Pagans were charged with assaulting an ATF agent, conspiracy, firearms, and possession of a silencer. In 1990, LaRocca and Francis Rick Ferry? Ferry were sentenced to life in prison for the murder of John Hetherington. While incarcerated, LaRocca continued to control his cocaine distribution network through family contacts and organized crime members of the Motorcycle Club until he was indicted... Uh, and given an additional 20 years.
1: Yeah. So I wanted to add on to this. You kind of went a little bit ahead. But um, the RICO charges, they they'd actually started with the mafia. They wanted to they, – they didn't have a way to – Perse- prosecute someone who didn't actually have their hands dirty and of course in the mafia the top guys don't have their hands dirty they have the people do it for them so they wanted the way they could see the obviously charge it, the obviously link but they couldn't charge these top guys that were calling the shots and they were arresting all these people and nothing was happening you know so that, that's actually where RICO charges came in and RICO mean, means racketeer influenced and corrupt organizations act and so it was originally; just, it was a very rare charge that people would get when it first came around. And honestly, for a very long while, this it it came out in the nineteen seventies, specifically because of stuff like this. And um, it would only be in like drastic situations that people would get hit with RICO charges. I feel like now lately, you've, you people they use it all time, all the time. Yeah, because they know it will fuck people. Become
0: one of the kind of one of the harshest tools that can be utilized but it's now i would say charged very very frequently
1: i mean just you know in the terms of like when when they came up with rico they were thinking of a top dog who was collecting all this money but wasn't getting his hands dirty well now it's kind of been interpreted as, as if you're working in a group it's rico well if say you're a, a weed dealer you're working in a group regard you can't sell anything if you don't have a supplier and you don't have buyers can't sell shit by yourself no matter what you're doing you so that intrinsically makes you makes a, group. It a criminal enterprise exactly and, and
0: in Indiana they have a thing called corrupt um, uh, business influence it's like the state version of RICO charges so you see it on the state side you see it in the federal side both and it's it's a tool that basically the legislatures have given the prosecutors to attack what they can see see like a corporate level of crime and it adds significant penalties, and that's why that's why you'll see them, I think, being utilized more and more. Last thing we're going to touch on based on, base with, with the Pagan group is in July 17th in 1994, there were at least eight members of the Pagans that showed up at the annual charity picnic fundraiser by another motorcycle club known by Tri-County, and this was in Hackettstown. The Pagans were there to intimidate the local motorcycle clubs into aligning with the Pagans so that they'd have a larger power base to prevent the Hells Angels from becoming established in New Jersey. A fight started and escalated from fists to, fist to knives and guns. When it was over, Pagan's Glenn Ritchie, Diego Vega, had been shot dead. Pagan Ron Locke and the Tri-County member William Johnson had gunshot wounds, and Tri-County member Rick, Rick, Hank Rigger had a, his throat cut. This made huge news back at the time when it happened because there was, there was such a, it was really a bloodbath. And the part that was really I found interesting was that these are biker gangs but the pagans showed up in a in a van. <laughs> Popped out of a van and did the attack from a van.
1: Yeah, they were they were ready to get shit popping. This was all about a,
0: this was a coordinated event. It wasn't like two biker gangs crossed ways and things went down. This was about the pagans trying to reestablish or continue to establish their dominance in the uh, in the northeast.
1: And unfortunately this happened at an annual charity picnic fundraiser, you know, and
0: well, they were legitimately trying to do good.
1: Yeah, but, and, you know, those worlds can collide so quick.
0: Well, and that's what gives the sort of that negative connotation. What the, the group that was attacked that was doing the good was do literally doing nothing wrong. At the moment. At the moment. But they were, you know, worried about their territory and making sure that there wasn't somebody that was going to develop or be somebody else that might line up with the Hell's Angels. Um. We're going to move on to another motorcycle club known as the Warlocks. The Warlocks were established by Tom, who went by the Grub or Grub Freeland. Interestingly, he was an ex-U.S. Navy veteran from Orlando, Florida in 1967. The mother chapter still to this day is located in Florida, and the club's founder, um, Mr. Grub, died in 2019. The club's insignia is a harpy, which is a Greek and Roman mythology, a female monster in the form of a bird with a human face. Sounds very appropriate motorcycle club. Type. So
1: if anybody knows what a harpy is, in particular, it's um, it's supposed to be, like, very beautiful. And it, it's kind of the same as sirens. If anybody knows what a siren is, it'd be, like, basically mermaids, and they would chant sailors. And they'd sing beautiful songs, and sailors would steer their boats towards them. And they would see these beautiful women in the water and they would jump into the water to be with them and think that they were gonna have sex and stuff and then they would be eaten. Harpies were the same way, but they were like kind of bird like instead. Hmm. So they'd be able to hide the rest of their body and they'd look like a beautiful woman and then kill these people.
0: One of the things we love about producer Devon is he's random, he is full of random bullshit, or at least shit.
1: I love <laughs> Greek and Roman <laughs> mythology.
0: I think it's accurate, but I have no idea. So if anybody ever hears something that he's saying that's not true, hey, I will never correct him. Call me out. (laughs) out I don't have any fucking clue.
1: I can throw throw links and citations towards my (laughs) shit.
0: (laughs) Their colors are red and white. The club rapidly expanded at the end of the Vietnam War when thousands of soldiers returned home to the United States, many of them to Pennsylvania and Florida. The club is most prominent and has its significant territory, in the Delaware Valley, including Philadelphia, Delaware County, South Jersey, and Wilmington, though they also have a heavy presence in nearby Lee Valley. There are now chapters all throughout Pennsylvania, South Jersey, and Delaware, as well as Ohio, with the mother chapter still residing in the state of Florida. Rivals with the Pagan MC Club, they were founded in 1965. They've established connections within the Philadelphia crime family, and their dealings are much more obscure and not as much information is known about them except for a few notable crimes that we will now dive into a little bit. On May 6th of 1995, and this is it's really a pretty sad story, Police Sergeant, on, all the way around, and we'll get into that, Police Sergeant Ippolito Lee Gonzalez of the Franklin Township, Gloucester County, New Jersey. It's, it's pronounced Gloucester. Gloucester uh-huh. County. Is that—is that Irish? I think so. Sounds
1: Irish. I think it's also a county or, or like Scottish. a place in, yeah, in Scotland.
0: Scottish. Sounds Ireland or Scottish. Uh, anyways, that he had pulled over a couple Warlock members, and that was Robert Mudman Simon and Charles Shovel Staples. I wonder why he was called Shovel.
1: Mm. <laughs>
0: Mudman <laughs> caused the problems. The shovel buried them. Yeah. Uh, they, they were on a traffic stop at moments after they had just committed a commercial burglary. Simon, also known as the Mudman, shot immediately upon pulling him over. Shot Gonzalez twice in the head and neck, and Gonzalez died instantly. Simon was later said, Simon later said he shot Sergeant Gonzalez because he didn't want to return back to prison. He'd been in prison previously, and maybe I think was even on parole at the time. He was quickly apprehended, pleaded guilty, and was sentenced to death. At the time of Gonzalez's murder, Simon was barely three months out of jail. And he was on parole after a 1981 conviction of killing another woman. It made a ton of news at the time because the public was outraged that somebody had already done murder was out again, and within months, uh, has now shot and, uh, while still on parole, is now shot and killed a cop. So it made a ton of news at the time. We
1: still see shit like that in the news. Absolutely outrage, which, granted, very valid, of course. Yeah, one
0: of the murder cases I did when I was a prosecutor, the. Um, victim was killed uh, with the claw side of a hammer to her head. And the guy that killed her was one week out of parole on a violent rape. So it happens. Terrible, terrible stuff. Um, at the times of uh, he was out on parole, he was sentenced to death, and he was stomped to death by Ambrose Harris inside the prison, who was another death row inmate in New Jersey at the Trenton State Prison. Uh, he argued self-defense and his pr- prison killing and was despite being on death row acquitted of that murder. Yeah, I'm curious, uh, like why even give a fuck? Yeah, uh, I guess, why not make the state do more work, I guess.
1: Maybe it was going to, well, maybe they it would have sped up his uh, execution.
0: The interesting part of this story is that um, while there's a lot out there about Charles Mudman Simon's involvement in that, Charles, uh, Robert Mudman simon Charles Shovel Staples also got arrested and convicted of murder as well. He actually had no criminal history. The, the burglary they had, the commercial burglary they had done was designed purposely to be done at the time that the business was closed and there would be nobody, nobody in it. So yeah, he didn't want to hurt anybody. He was really adamant to not be hurting anybody. And he had nothing to do with the shooting of this sheriff deputy. It was done spontaneously without his knowledge that it was going to occur and that resulted in him being convicted of murder.
1: And he was also a veteran, wasn't he? He was a
0: he was a military veteran. He had no history, and he has some interesting things out there where he's he's accepted his fate. Um, but there's a, a decent amount of people uh, supportive of him to say that he's you know his punishment was too harsh, given that yeah he had an otherwise pretty reputable life and and. Um, but he's also, he's actually, the the stuff out about him, he's pretty humble about it. He's like, you know, I did i did get engaged in something where I should have known it could have gone wrong. I didn't yeah. want it to go this way. But. I
1: mean, when a cop dies, all shit hits the fan. And, and that's what happened. He, he was down on his dick, and he needed money. They robbed a commercial business, and typically they'd go in guns blazing, but he didn't want to hurt nobody. So they went in. After the fact, I'm not saying that excuses it, but that goes to show that he wasn't wanting to have this cop be killed. Right. He, he had no idea that his the guy with him was about to murder this cop. Like, I can only imagine. This guy was probably, like, literally, like, not even figuratively, literally shitting himself.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. As soon as he saw it happening, he's like, oh, fuck. I mean, what do we do now, you know? Yeah. Terrible. Um, in October, the, the, war, the warlocks get tied into the drug, the drug industry, too, just like most of the— criminal motorcycle clubs did in October 2008 the Pennsylvania Pennsylvania state attorney general Tom Corbett he alleged that the Warlocks Motorcycle Club was involved in the dealing and manufacturing of methamphetamine operation based in Berks County Pennsylvania there was a sting that they dubbed operation Underground Corbett said the operation manu- manufactured and distributed 9 million dollars worth of methamphetamine throughout the southeastern part of Pennsylvania and possibly supplied uh, to members of the Warlocks Motorcycle Club, which had allegedly been linked to organized crime and drug trafficking. So they got tied into the drug industry as well. There's a number of um, uh, uh, criminal charges and things of that nature that came out of it. And, uh, you know, just added to the history of, of that organization. We're going to next talk about what may be, uh, and this will be our, our last uh club that we hit up, but probably the, I I don't know, wouldn't you say the most well-known?
1: Oh, yeah, and the most infamous.
0: Yeah, the, the Hells Angels. I think th- even those that aren't familiar with motorcycle clubs in general, I've heard are the Hell, Hells Angels.
1: They're huge in Indy. Yeah,
0: yes, absolutely. Seen, I've seen them. You can. They're they're, they're uh, Their jackets or whatever, however you call them, whatever they refer to them as, their gear is all pretty recognizable. Yeah,
1: I've had... Many, many, many family members that were acquaintances were f- friends with many people in Hell's Angels.
0: The Hell's Angels are a worldwide outlaw motorcycle club, whose members typically ride Harley Davidson motorcycles. In fact, I think I've never seen one that didn't. I think they would probably be belittled if they were riding something else.
1: Yeah, you have. I'm almost certain that you have to have a expected to have a Harley.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, they're throughout the United States and Canada. They're incorporated as the Hell's Angels Motorcycle Corporation, so there's a lot of formality to them. Common nicknames for the Hell's Angels for the, were H.A., Red and White, H.A.M.C., and 81. They had a membership between 3,000 and 3,600 with 467 chapters in
1: 59
0: countries. So we're talking about a huge organization, one of the largest, most famous uh, in the world.
1: So the the number 81, it actually comes from, think of where H is on the alphabet and where A is on the alphabet. A is the first letter. H is the 8. That is where the 81 comes from. The, I, I, I you know you all may
0: have remembered me talking about Devin full of worthless information. Somehow he knows A, that.
1: <laughs> worthless but interesting. And as something so trivial as that, I think that was pretty cool.
0: That was good. Yeah, I had no idea where 81 came from. Now I do. So uh that's why we like Evan Devin on the show. Many police and international intelligence agencies, including the United States Department of Justice and Europol. They say that right. Europol? Europol. Europol. Consider the club an organized crime syndicate.
1: Now I want to add, this organization is so damn big that there's not like some freaking grandmaster at the very top controlling these strings worldwide. They now the leaders of all of these different subsections of Hell's Angels may talk to each other. Um, but based off what I was reading, sometimes Hell's Angels, different sects of each other, will even... Battle like, amongst themselves. Yeah, like bump heads and stuff. Well,
0: anytime you're getting over involved in territories and one has this part of town or that part of town, easily can develop into that. They originally got their start in uh, F- Fontana, California, back in 1948. And it was the merger of several motorcycle clubs that... Led to what was the Hell's Angels, Otto Friede, Fried, do that again, okay. Otto Friedeli. I
1: think it's Otto Friedli.
0: Friedli. Okay, know. we'll go with that. A World War II veteran credited with starting the club after breaking from the Pissed Off Bastards Motorcycle Club over a feud with a rival gang. If nothing else, perhaps uh, Mister Otto decided just the name Pissed Off Bastards was. One he couldn't live with anymore.
1: I don't know. He, he was a World War II veteran. I feel like he was a pretty pissed off bastard. Could be. Could uh, be. Hey, you got to admit, one, the similarities are all of these guys seem to be people you would respect in everyday life. Veterans. Right. Like biochemists. Yeah. And they're also very good at making names.
0: <laughs> High level of creativity. According to the club's website, the name was first suggest- suggested by Arvid Olson, an associate of the founder's who had served the Hells Angels squadron of the Flying Tigers in China during World War II. So exactly kind of what you're talking about. In a letter written to the Guinness Book of World Records by a member of the Hells Angels, it is instead stated that the club's name was taken from the Hells Angels squadron of the 303rd Bombardment Group, which was active in the European theater of World War II. It is at least clear that the name was inspired by the tradition from World War I and two, whereby the Americans gave the squadrons fierce, death-defying titles. As an example of the lies in one of the three...
1: Of this lies.
0: uh, Oh, an example of that lies in one of the three P-40s squadrons of flying tigers fielded in Burma and China, which was dubbed Hell's Angels. So there's a lot of different varieties, I guess stories, if you will, of where the name came from. Um, In 1930, Howard Hughes filmed Hell's Angels showcased extraordinary and dangerous feats of aviation, and it is believed that World War II groups that used the name based on that film. According to the Hell's Angels website, they are aware that there is an apostrophe missing in Hell's Angels. But it is you who will miss it. We don't. That's how they dealt with the name over the years. There's, I don't think there's an official, this is where it came from.
1: Well, I mean, it's kind of like playing phone tag, you know what I mean? Or like uh, that telephone game where you all speak through a phone stuff just kind of gets messed up over time. S- stories get changed, and, or maybe multiple people had similar experiences to where when you told it to someone else, you know, their memory was different. But for an outlaw motorcycle group to have a website, that seems pretty legit. Like, well,
0: it, yeah, I mean, especially in this day and age. The tie to uh, military carries on in that they have a system of patches that are very similar to military medals. The specific meaning of each patch is not publicly known but the patches are an identity of each biker's specific or significant actions or beliefs. The official colors of the Hells Angels are red lettering displayed on a white background, hence the club's nickname, the Red and White. The patches are worn on either leather or denim, jacks, or vests. The club is not officially a racially segregated organization. In the U.S., at least one charter allegedly requires that the candidate be a white male. And Sonny Barger said in a 2000 BBC interview, the club as a whole is not a racist is not racist, but we probably have enough racist members that no black guy is going to get in. So at the time the club had no black members, the Satan's Angels MC in Vancouver had a black member when it merged with the Hell's Angels in 1983. The San Francisco and Anchorage chapters threatened to have the Vancouver chapter expelled from the club when they learned of the situation. The matter was ultimately solved when the man changed his nationality to Hawaiian. <laughs> An unpsychicened Hell's Angels chapter in Windsor, England, was granted official status in 1985, shortly after its only black member, John Mickelson, had died in police custody.
1: That's pretty fucked, isn't it? It changed his... (laughs) From black to Hawaiian? Well, not even that. One, I don't know how the hell that fixes anything. And I don't know how... He's still black. (laughs) Exactly. And two, I mean, here, obviously, this is still crime. You know, there's no honor among thieves. Um... But this black member died in police custody, probably getting arrested doing something on behalf of a Hell's Angels. Right. And the other chapters were basically excited that he was dead. Like, oh, that was just hurt so bad. Thinking you have, like, a tribe. Right.
0: Yeah, I know, absolutely. And and I don't know. Weird that they went from black to Hawaiian. Yeah, <laughs> where the fuck that. is that? I don't understand. And, and that. the guy, like,
1: his skin, maybe he was, like, Really white, looked like, like maybe looked white, or know. white passing maybe? He
0: wore a, he wore a uh, what do they call it, the, the lay, it had a layer on his neck.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah,
0: <laughs> a lay. Um, they're tied to criminal activity. The members of the organization have always continuously asserted that they are the only group of motorcycle enthusiasts who have joined to ride motorcycles together to organize special events such, such as group road trips, fundraisers, parties, and motorcycle rallies
1: and that any crimes are the responsibilities of individuals not associated with the club as a whole. Which I think makes sense if they have a website. I feel like that gives credence to that, because what criminal organization will have a goddamn website?
0: Well, and they're, yeah, and I mean, I think, I mean, you can look at any entity, any group, and if it's large enough, there's going to be somebody that's committed crimes in it. Or, yeah. So it's not like they don't have some, you know, if there's, again, one percenters. So if there's most of them are doing good things and doing this just to be in part of a, group of individuals that happen to enjoy the same hobby of riding motorcycles, then yeah, I mean, that's a
1: legit thing. But yeah. Despite this, various U.S. law enforcement agencies classify the Hells Angels as one of the quote-unquote Big Four motorcycle gangs, along with the pagans, as referenced earlier, outlaws, and banditos, and contend that members carry out widespread violent crime and organized crime, including drug dealing, trafficking in stolen goods, extortion, and prostitution operations. Members of the organization have continuously asserted that they are only a group of motorcycle enthusiasts who have joined to ride motorcycles together to organize social events such as group road trips, fundraisers, parties, and motorcycle rallies, and that any crimes are the responsibility of the people who carried them out. Not the club as a whole. So this, this is always like the same thing that they've said. Like you just said that. They yeah, were-
0: it's not it's not us. It's a few of
1: them. Right, and it did mention the Banditos. That is, I didn't bring up we were not bringing up the Banditos because that is a whole podcast in and of itself. They are the most cutthroat, violent biker gang in the in the basically world. Definitely in America, surpass the Hells Angels in terms of outright violence. I'm not even sure if the banditos have people in them who think that they're not committing crimes. I think you're, that it's just pure. They're
0: accepting of that. Yeah, they're all moniker. committing crimes.
1: And they are very cutthroat. Um, and they are like the most brutal, murderous, and drug-fueled uh, OMC that like exists.
0: Yeah, and despite the claims of the uh, Hells Angels, the federal government, knowing that this is an international organization, has designated the or has de- designated the bike group as a known criminal organization. And the Department of Homeland Security has a federal policy prohibiting its foreign members from entering the company a country. So they've put the Hells Angels that are international members on like the do not fly list into America. They are stating, or the federal government has stated the Hells Angels partake in drug trafficking, gun running, extortion, money laundering, insurance fraud, kidnapping, robbery, theft, counterfeiting, contraband smuggling, loan sharking, prostitution, trafficking in stolen goods, motorcycle and motorcycle parts theft, assault, murder, bombings, arson, intimidation, and contract killing. Those are all the things they've listed as um, uh, reasons that they've banned members from coming into the country. The club's rule and narcotics trades involves the production, tr- transportation, and distribution of marijuana and methamphetamine, in addition to the transportation and distribution of cocaine, hashish, heroin, LSD, MDMA, PCP, and diverted pharmaceuticals. This is all according to the FBI. The Hell's Angels may earn up to a billion dollars in drug sales annually. So, obviously, the federal government... Um,
1: Fucking hates these guys. <laughs> yeah, they, they
0: don't agree with the peace-loving, charity uh, sort of tradition that they are the claiming them to be. That front that they put out. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, what I'm really curious is I wonder if it's, since all Hell's Angels, well, I don't know, if since Hell's Angels are not allowed in the country, I wonder if that includes people who haven't committed crimes and they're literally in that is, as a It's been designated
0: hobby. as a member. I think so.
1: Or Yeah, or just as a hobby. Like, it's a hobby.
0: I mean, I think it's like being on the known terrorist list.
1: I wonder how they how they, like, how you'd even find out that. Like, would you fly to America and then get arrested when you're here just because you?
0: Well, I think they wouldn't even let you pass through customs probably. And through the the passport process. You think
1: they'd like arrest you or just turn you off like turn you around?
0: Uh, That's just turning you away. Huh. So it'd be yeah, I mean, all because you you ride a motorcycle and wear a coat, even if you maybe didn't do anything wrong.
1: Yeah. I mean I can imagine how frustrating that would be uh, for the people that know they don't do anything wrong and especially the people that are doing like real charities and
0: Well, a lot of that probably does go back to nine eleven where you know, some very, what looked on their face to be completely normal people that ended up being affiliated with a terrorist group infiltrated the country just by coming here. And then they spent years here before they did anything uh, criminal or bad. And obviously they did something horrific. And so then that created the whole fly list and all these things that they try to be more proactive as opposed to reactive to. Right. And so I'm sure that's where these international members of the Hells Angels have gotten caught up in that same sort of, uh, governmental, I guess, watch list, if you will.
1: Kind of made the term like sleeper sleeper cell agents mm-hmm. kind of like in the public eye as well. You know what that is, right? Right, yeah, absolutely. Like someone who it seems to be completely normal, but right. they, they can do what needs to be done at a blink of an eye. Like yeah, I mean, one of the nine eleven
0: guys was like a flight school instructor. Right. And so that's how he learned to fly, and that was all part of his cover that was really designed to teach him how so he could fly a giant jet into buildings.
1: Yeah, it's that's, that's just fucking... So insane. you never
0: know, I mean... So you can kind of see why where they're getting with that, but um,
1: it doesn't make it any less unfair to the guys that are legit. Yeah,
0: yeah, and it it would be tough to because I know with that
1: I feel like I wouldn't I wouldn't like to come to terms with that. No,
0: and I've known I've known some people and that are members of a bicycle group and have
1: bicycle. uh, bicycle. I said I said the two thing. (laughs) Yeah,
0: the motorcycle group. I don't know any bicycle groups. You're gonna get your ass beat. Walking out of here one time, they're gonna be. You think this is a bicycle?" bicycle? Right. But I've known some guys in, in uh, motorcycle clubs that uh, they were not violent people, and they didn't want other people to be violent people, but right. you can't control what everybody does in, in right. any organization.
1: Unfortunately, I also kind of feel like if you're treated as a criminal just because you're part of this group that some of them do criminal activities and you're already being punished for something you never did, it would enable right. you to be like, well, fuck it. I'll commit right. crimes. Right, right. You know. Yeah.
0: Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is going to be a wrap on our coverage on uh, – Bicycle, bi- some of the bigger biker gangs. Known in a, <laughs> I did it again. again. Motorcycle
1: man, uh, gangs and our, uh, you may our have clubs. To stay strapped, leaving here. <laughs>
0: exactly, um, and and just to highlight sort of what that history is and why they have sort of the um, negative connotations that've been attached to them. Again, we thank you very much for listening to Pocket Law Talks, and until next time, we
1: will see you guys then. Thank you. <laughs>